Paul had stopped on his way to Jerusalem in Miletus in order to encourage the church leaders in Ephesus in what he sensed might be his last journey. As Paul arrived here in Jerusalem, he was advised by some of his friends to go to the temple and take part in some of the rites of purifications. The accusation against Paul was that he was converting Gentiles and telling them not to keep the ceremonial law. And some of his friends thought that if he himself participated, it would go a long way to removing this objection. Their strategy was misguided though, for they failed to grasp the level of anger and hatred against him. After several days, some Jews from Asia Minor recognized him and raised the alarm. And if it wasn't for the intervention of the Roman commander, Paul might have lost his life. Paul was taken to prison where his status as a Roman citizen afforded him the privilege of not being beaten, but he still knew that he was not safe. About 40 or so Jews took an oath that they wouldn't eat or drink anything until Paul was dead. Paul's sister's son heard about this ambush and came and warned Paul, who told him to tell the guards. They, taking this threat seriously, arranged for Paul to be transported here to Caesarea at night and put under the protection of Felix. Both Claudius and Felix did not see any weight of evidence in what they were charging Paul with and realized that it was a doctrinal issue over Jewish beliefs that they were trying to kill Paul about. Felix is not known as being a noble man. One historian is quoted as saying, he has the power of a king and the temper of a slave. Yet even he could find no reason to execute Paul and the Jewish leaders were defeated at trial. After the trial, Felix called for Paul and gave him a hearing. The Bible says in Acts 24 verse 25 that he reasoned about righteousness, temperance and the judgment to come. But sadly, Felix under conviction told Paul to go away for now and when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. We never hear of Felix calling for Paul again. Paul remained here in prison for two years. Felix wasn't courageous enough to release a man he knew was innocent. And after he was called back to Rome, he was replaced by Festus as the regional leader. The Jewish leaders and high priests petitioned Festus to have Paul tried in Jerusalem. Initially, he refused, but they traveled here to Caesarea and petitioned again. And wanting to win favor with them, he asked Paul if he would be willing to go. Paul knew that the plan was to kill him on the way, and so now he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to stand before Caesar. Festus answered, unto Caesar you have appealed, and unto Caesar you will go. While Paul was waiting here for the ship to take him to Rome, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice came by to see Festus and hearing about Paul's situation, they asked to see him. Right here in this room, Paul was able to give a defense of his faith and his powerful testimony and it's recorded in Acts chapter 26. When he was finished, King Agrippa, maybe unaware of his surroundings for a few moments said, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. These two men, Felix, 
who asked for a convenient time, and Agrippa, who was almost persuaded, represent a large class of people today. Those who are convicted, but are stubborn, and those who want a better time where there's no obstacles to give their life to Jesus. If you are thinking of giving your life to Jesus today, don't delay. The best time to give your life to Jesus is always the earliest time. May we not be almost persuaded like Agrippa, but fully persuaded of who Jesus is and what he has done for us today. Well, good morning. That's a little uh, review of where we've been in our study of the book of Acts and uh, where we're going this morning. We're going to do Acts 25 and 26 uh, this morning, so take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 25. If you're watching online, glad you can join us, and of course down in F3 as well. Uh, grab your Bibles and uh, Acts chapter 25. You know, stories of courage under... Um, some of the uh, maybe most horrendous situations uh, are always inspiring. We, we admire people who appear uh, courageous and, and bold in the face of some pretty bad circumstances, even if it's uh, not necessarily true or not. It's like the woman and her husband that uh, had to interrupt their vacation uh, and make an emergency stop at a dentist office. Um, she walked into the office. Uh, she said, uh, I want a tooth uh, pulled. I want it pulled now. I don't want to have Novocaine. I, I want to do it quickly and get out of here. Just pull the tooth so we can be on our way. And the dentist looked at her and he says, Madam, I courage and, and boldness in, in this office. Um, it's quite amazing. Please sit down. Now, what tooth is it? And she said, Harry, sit down, open your mouth, and show them your tooth. <laughs> Courage and boldness. It's qualities uh, we admire. And as, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, when that courage is manifested, um, it, it can make a real impact on people. A high school student who, who is being uh, tempted by friends to do something that would be not very God-honoring. And he says, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. And he shares his faith. Or the college student who hears her teacher ridicule the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and she raises her hand and says, um, I'd like to give a defense for that. And she stands up for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Or the business person who is asked by um, his or her boss to do something just a little shady, you know, for the good of the company. And the person says, no, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I can't do that because I have, you see, a higher boss that I'm answerable to. The stories of, of courage, and they can be impactful. In our study of the book of Acts, that idea of boldness runs throughout this book. Early chapter, chapter 2, where Peter is confronting the Jewish people, just weeks after they had crucified Jesus. And he said, this Jesus, you crucified by the hands of godless men. You put him to death, but he's alive today. Or, um, or Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, standing before the, the religious elite who hated the name of Jesus. And he gives a defense 
and they put him to death. Or, or Philip, who is whisked away on the road coming out of Jerusalem, and he, he meets a, an, an Ethiopian high official, and he shares the truth of Jesus with him. Over and over again in, in scriptures, in the, in the study of the book of Acts, we've, we've seen this. Example, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. It says in chapter 14, verse 3, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Wherever Paul went, there was, he just exuded this, this boldness. Uh, chapter 19, verse 8, He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I, over and over again, boldness. But I don't know if there's any greater display of boldness than what we've been reading the last uh, few weeks here in these final chapters of Acts, where Paul, under such extreme pressure, um, under the, the, the guard of Romans, hearing the, the, the vitriol, the hatred of the Jewish people, and he stands time and time again and gives a defense of the hope that is within him. We see that in chapter 25 again in verse 1 when it says, Festus then having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Last week Tim was talking in chapter 24 about Paul standing before Felix. Felix was uh, the Roman governor who uh, was, uh, by all historical accounts, was a very vicious, cruel man. You read a little bit of history of, uh, of Felix, and he was not uh, someone uh, anybody would want to bring home to mother, that's for sure. And um, he ended up doing some things that cost him to go back to Rome, and Rome sent a new governor by the name of Festus. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said of Festus that he was a wise and just ruler. So he learned from, uh, uh, from, Fe uh, from Felix that you have to kind of walk a little more gently and carefully, and he did. In fact, here is an example. He's in Caesarea. That was the seat of Roman power there in Palestine. And three days after he gets there, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the religious elite. Verse 2 says that the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. You know, they're never going to drop this. Paul has been in jail now in Caesarea for two years, it says, the last part of chapter 24. Felix just left him there. He didn't deal with him. He goes back to Rome. Festus comes, and Paul has been in jail in Caesarea for two years. You'd think the Jews in Jerusalem would forget it by now. But no, they hated this guy. And so they bring charges again against Paul. Verse 3, requested a concession against Paul that he might have him be brought to Jerusalem. At the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Verse 4, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. So, verse 6, after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And obviously some of these Jewish people, uh, elites of, uh, of the Sanhedrin, joined him. They went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought in. So here we go again. Verse 7, after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove... Remember last week, chapter 24, two years before, they had brought uh, Tertullus, this high-powered lawyer, to bring these charges. Nothing stuck. 
It didn't work. Here they are two years later, bringing the same old charges, but no witnesses, nothing, couldn't prove a thing. And so Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, you know, this guy, he's, you know, he's got to live with these people. He's the governor in this area, so he's going to, you know, kind of, uh, give him, throw him a bone here, throw him something, wishing to do Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, hey, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? You know, it might be a way to say, look, I'll pacify the Jewish people. We're going to do this in Jerusalem. But Paul, you, you won't stand before them. You'll stand before me. I'm just going to, I'll just move my tribunal up there and we'll get this thing taken care of and it'll be over. And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal right now, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. Don't you love that? Hey, look, if, I, if I'm guilty of, of doing something that's worthy of capital punishment, bring it on. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, then no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. That was his right to do as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. Okay, so Festus, verse 12, um, had to confer with his counsel, and then he came, comes back to Paul and says, well, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. How is Paul going to get to Rome? God had told him, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to be my, you're going to testify of me before the power elites of Rome. How is he going to get there? Well, now we know. Verse 13, now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus, this new governor. Agrippa II, here's an interesting guy, and Bernice, who is, get this, his sister, um, Agrippa II, he was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who had built the temple and all the fancy things in, 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 in Palestine. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He had an amazing lineage. Um, his father, Agrippa I, was the, was the ruler who put, in, in Acts chapter 4, put James to death. And then later in that chapter, it says, he suddenly died and was eaten by worms. My granddaughter's favorite verse. <laughs> that was his father. His sister Bernice. Bernice uh, had been married several times before and uh, kept coming back to Agrippa, her brother. And the rumors were that this was some type of incestuous relationship. That was the rumor mill. Um, and it says he was a king. It wasn't a big king. There was an area uh, in the northern part of the area that uh, he was a kind of a ruler over, but he was given that title, king. Um, Festus was actually over him. Uh, but anyway, Agrippa and Bernice, and by the way, Agrippa and Bernice were Jews, so you got that mix in it. So they come to greet Festus, the new governor, and while, verse 14, they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king and said, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that 
And it's not the custom of Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against those charges. So, after they had assembled here in Caesarea, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal, ordered the man to be brought in before me, and when the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, but none of such crimes as I was expecting. They, they simply had some points of disagreement with them about their own religion and, a, and about a, a, a dead man, um, uh, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to still be alive. And being at a loss of how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. And Paul appealed, though, to be held in custody for the emperor's decision. So I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, man, I'd like to hear this man myself. And Festus said, tomorrow you shall hear him. What an interesting exchange. I, there's, there's nothing sticking to this guy. I mean... He's been here two years. Felix passed him on to me. I offered to take him down there to get him, get this thing resolved. He refused. He's appealed to Caesar. And he keeps talking about, about some dead man, um, uh, Jesus, who he says is alive. Festus hadn't really done a lot of very good homework, had he? Um, Christianity was growing by leaps and bounds. Thousands upon thousands of people were following after this dead man, Jesus, who they claim is alive. Not knowing how to investigate such matters, he said, I, I was at a, a loss of what to do. Yeah, how, how are you going to investigate what happened to an empty tomb? How are you going to investigate these claims of people willing to die for their their belief of the resurrection of some dead man. Well, the next day, verse 23, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, you got to understand this scene here. This is Caesarea. This is the seat of Roman power in that region, in Judea, in, in, in Palestine. The seat of Roman power. Um, Herod the Great had built this city up. It was, uh, uh, it, it, it was, the, it was where the Roman soldiers, the, the, the heart of Rome was garrisoned. Um, that's where the governor was. This, this was the place of power and elitism, Caesarea. And on this day in the auditorium, here comes King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus the governor with great pomp, great glory, fanfare, commanders and prominent men of the city, and they come in to, to what? To see a man who'd been in prison now for two years. Paul. We don't know really much about Paul in terms of, we say his name meant maybe small. There's a second century description of Paul that may be accurate. It described Paul this way. Paul was a small, bald-headed man with crooked legs, a rather hooked nose, and eyebrows that met in the middle. Got the picture? A small, bald-headed man with crooked legs, a rather hooked nose, and eyebrows that met at the middle. And they ushered him in 
in the center of this auditorium amidst all the pomp and glory and power of Caesarea right there before him. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man, <laughs> this, this bald-headed, small little man with crooked legs and a hooked nose and eyebrows that meet in the middle? This man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live another day. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet, and here was Festus's dilemma. It was the same dilemma that Felix had. I, I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord, to write to the emperor about. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I, I might have something to write. For it seems absurd to me to send a prisoner and not indicate the charges that are against him. You think, Festus, you're going to send somebody to the emperor, and the emperor brings them in and says, uh, so what's the charge? And you know, I don't know. Anybody have a charge against this? No. no I, well, what in the world would Festus bring him here? What, what is go, what's the matter with Festus? And Festus said, I've got to figure something out. So you go ahead and talk, Paul, and as he's talking, let's take notes, and we'll figure out what we can charge this guy with. Chapter 26, verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And that's when Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. And this is the longest and most detailed of Paul's defense speeches. And it's really not so much as we'll see, not so much a defense, but it is a powerful, um, a powerful sermon. You see, in this setting, there in Caesarea, with all the Roman guards and all the governors and all the powerful people up there, Paul was not the prisoner. <laughs> Paul had a captured audience. They were all his prisoners. And he was going to make the most of it. And he stretches out his hands and he begins. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions about among the Jews, because he was Jewish. He understood. He, he understood all those things. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me now patiently. And so here Paul goes. Here it begins. So then. And he talks about his life before he met Jesus. All Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And this hope, O king, I'm being accused of by the Jews. See what Paul is doing? His other testimony, he talked about how he was trained under Gamaliel, the, the, the uh, revered teacher of Judaism. Cut him anywhere, Paul would bleed Jew. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee to the nth degree. He said he was standing trial for the hope of the promise that God had made to our fathers. He's talking to Agrippa, the Jew. 
standing on trial for the hope of the promise made to our fathers, this hope that our, our 12 tribes hope to attain to. This hope, he says, is what I'm being accused of. Hope. And then he says and interjects in verse 8, it's almost like an aside, but he says, hey, why is it considered incredible among people if God does raise the dead? We have, we have hope. Hope is going to come from a Messiah. Why is it considered incredible that God could raise someone from the dead? Which is the heart of the issue, by the way. Always has been for Paul in his defense. A living Messiah a resurrected Jesus. So then, he says in verse 9, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of, of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them, like, like Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Verse 11, And as I punished them all, Often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, being furiously enraged at them and kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul said, I, 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 held, I held knives to their throat and demanded that they curse this Jesus, that they blaspheme. I did those things, Paul says. I was enraged with them. That was my pedigree. That's who I was. I tracked them down even to foreign cities. And now he tells how he met this Jesus. Verse 12, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining all around me and those, were journeying, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A, a, a dead man, by the way, wouldn't say that. This, uh, this dead man, um, uh, Jesus. Saul, uh, I, I, I've, I've, got, I've, I've got my eye on you. I've got my sovereign plan for your life. And you think you're going to Damascus to go kill some of my people. Well, I'm in charge. You can't kick against the prods. You can't overturn what I'm about to do to you. And I said in verse 15, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa. So Paul, Paul has talked about before he knew Christ. He talked just now about how he met Christ. And now he's going to talk about what his life is, what it's like since he met Christ. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
I kept declaring both to those in Damascus at first and then Jerusalem through all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate with repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. Verse 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. What is that? Verse 23, that the Messiah, the Christ, was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And he comes back to this central message. It's the, the gospel, the good news. God sent his Messiah in fulfillment of all the prophecies from Moses throughout all the prophets. And this Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. And he suffered. He died on the cross. He paid for your sins. He offers forgiveness freely. And he rose again from the dead. And I'm on trial for that truth, for that good news. Paul was preaching a sermon. He had a captive audience. There was this small, bald-headed, crooked-legged, uh, hook-nosed, eyebrows meeting in the middle kind of a guy. And he's proclaiming Jesus with power, with boldness, after two years of being in a prison cell. And while Paul, it says in verse 24, was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Your learning has made you mad. I don't know what elicited that response. But he saw this man standing there with all the power and pomp of Caesarea of all of Rome. Standing there saying, this Jesus died. He rose again. He's alive. And I'm testifying to you this day. And it was too much for this powerful governor to handle. Stop, stop. You're, 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 you're crazy. You're, 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 you're goofy. You're nuts. Your learning has made you mad. He couldn't handle it. And what does Paul say in return, verse 25? I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. And there he stands, calm, collected, confident, and bold. No, Festus, I'm not nuts. <laughs> I'm not crazy. I'm telling you sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and there sits Agrippa. I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escapes his notice. For this has not been, these things have not been done in some dark little secret corner. This is widely known. What I'm saying is widely known, and Agrippa knows it. And then Paul does something very bold, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Boy, does that put... King Agrippa, in this auditorium with all these fancy elite people of Caesarea, put him on the spot. Here's the Jewish king. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And at that, Agrippa replied to Paul, what an answer. In a short time, you will persuade me to become a, a Christian. It's the first time that word is used. 
a Christian. You're going to persuade me if you keep talking. You better stop because I'm almost persuaded. And Paul's response is quite amazing. He said in verse 29, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except, of course, with these chains. I wish that you would become as I am. What did Paul mean by that? I wish you, you would become as I am. There they were. Everything they wanted, they would have. Wealth untold, power, prestige. There they were sitting in that auditorium. And here is Paul with nothing but the shirt on his back. And he was saying, oh, I wish. I wish you would become as I am. Who was Paul? He was a sinner who had been forgiven of his sins and heaven bound. He was a a man who was set free from the penalty and and the power of sin. He was a man who had a personal relationship with the living God. He was a man who was indwelt with the power of God himself and the presence of the Spirit of God within him. He was a man who was alive forevermore because of Jesus. He was a man who was eternally, fabulously wealthy, spiritually. Who were they? Well, they had all the power and all the wealth that the world could give, but they were bankrupt in every which way otherwise, spiritually, eternally. Festus and Agrippa, they had the power of Rome behind them. Paul, he had the power of the living God, for greater was he that was in Paul than the one who was in the world. I wish that you could all be like me, except for these chains. And that's when the king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another and saying, this, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And the interrogation, the trials, it's all over for Paul. And he'll get on a boat there in Caesarea, and we'll see next week he'll head to Rome. One of the things I think that clearly stands out in in, uh, these two chapters and the previous ones is just that confident boldness of Paul. Boldness before the top brass of Rome. What an incredible, incredible scene that would have been. And it wasn't that, I I think, came naturally for Paul. Paul knew that this was something that God would have to give him. We know he asked for prayer in Ephesians chapter um, 6. He had asked for prayer by the Ephesian church. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray that I'll be bold. Well, God answered that, didn't he? Boldness. But it was a boldness that was based on some convictions. It just wasn't a a contrived boldness or courage. Let me share with you what I think are three underlying convictions to Paul's boldness. Here's the first one. Without a doubt, Paul was convinced 
of the aliveness of God. He boldly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was convinced of it. He had seen the resurrected Christ. He had communicated to them. It was a personal relationship with him. Jesus was alive to Paul. Paul knew it. With every fiber of his being, his hope was in a living Jesus. Not a um, uh, so-called the dead man uh, Jesus, whom Paul said is alive. His hope was in the living Lord. Back in verse 22, he said, I stand here. Get that up here. He said, I stand here this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, which was what? That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he'd be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. You know, again, back in verse 8, why is it so incredible to think that God could raise someone from the dead? Paul was so convinced Jesus was alive. There was no doubting that. He could stand before all that, that um, angry mob in Jerusalem. He could stand before the people of the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of Judaism. He could stand be, before all the regaling uh, pomp and circumstance of Caesarea and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God was alive, and there was no doubting it for the Apostle Paul. Tim mentioned this last week from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes, if Christ was not raised, well, then we are all, all people most to be pitied. But then Paul said, but Christ is raised from the dead. That's not a doubt. That's not a question. Jesus is alive. And testifying to a living Jesus is a privilege that any believer in Jesus Christ can do and should do. First century enemies of Christ had no answer for an empty tomb. None. How are we going to investigate this? (laughs) No answer for an empty tomb. 2,000 years later, people can scoff at it. They can ridicule it. They can laugh at this concept of a, of a resurrected Jesus. But when the scoffing's done and the ridicule is over, they still have to come up with, why did, is the tomb empty in Jerusalem? What do you do with the claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Paul stood boldly before the powerful elites and proclaimed a resurrected Jesus because he was convinced of the aliveness of God. And folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, maybe it's time for us to kind of reaffirm our commitment, not just on Easter, but every day. When we boldly engage this world, this world that is sick and in darkness and, and in the clutches of the God of this world, the evil one, we have a living Savior. We are part of the people of life. And we need to be reconvinced, maybe, of the aliveness of God and not panic and have sweating palms and biting their fingernails like, what in the world is going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. I read the last book of the Bible. We win. <laughs> why? Because we've got a live God. That's why. And so sometimes I think we just need to do what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks for you to give an account for the hope that is in you, and yet with gentleness and reverence. So let me make a couple suggestions. There's some great tools out there that maybe might help us just kind of freshen up on the doctrine of the resurrection. This is a classic by Lee Strobel, The Case for Easter. 
um, pick up a copy. Um, folks, we're, we're Christians. We serve a living God. People, we, we, can, we can engage people with these things. Uh, Gary uh, Habermas, uh, he's kind of a, the, the, the evangelical expert on the resurrection. New book, or fairly new, 2021, uh, Risen Indeed, a Historical Investigation of the Resurrection of Jesus. Great stuff. Uh, Jeremiah Johnston, not the Jeremiah Johnston of the mountain man of 150 years ago, but Jeremiah Johnston, came out with this book this spring, um, Body of Proof. Very easy read. But folks, this is, people don't have an answer for this. And we have to be prepared to give a, a defense for the hope that is within us. And we serve a living God. So we don't have to hang our head in shame. We don't have to hide and cower. But with boldness, we can affirm the fact that no other religion makes this claim. But Christianity is true because our God is light. Paul was convinced of that. Second of all, Paul was convinced that one plus God makes a distinct majority. There was Paul standing in that auditorium all alone. <laughs> all alone. But with the power of God. Paul said this and when he wrote to the Roman church. He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, yeah, uh, enemies of Christ could be against us. They can take our homes. They can take our jobs. They can, they can persecute us and they can take our lives. Uh, but no, they can't kill us. They can't take away our eternal destiny because one plus God is a distinct majority. He went on in Romans chapter 8 and he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Paul was a man of confident boldness because he knew he was an overwhelming conqueror in Jesus because greater was the one in him than the one in the world and he stood there as a distinct majority because of God a third conviction Paul was convinced convinced that when you have Jesus you have everything everything Agrippa Festus the elites of Caesarea they had all the worldly wealth and all the power a person could imagine and would want. But without Jesus, they had nothing. And Paul had everything. He knew that. He was convinced of that. He had Jesus. And folks, if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, here's the good news. We've got everything. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are fabulously, wonderfully, eternally wealthy, spiritually in Christ. The sad thing is we oftentimes just don't know 
how wealthy we are. So we live like spiritual paupers at times, not understanding all that God has done for us, all that he has secured for us when he died for us on the cross and rose again and gave us his Holy Spirit to live. I wish that you all were as I am, Paul said. We are fabulously wealthy because of Jesus. That's the most defining thing about us. If you know Jesus, and I hope you all do this morning, because if you don't know Jesus, you don't have anything. Oh, you might have wealth and money and a great job and good looks and everything else that the world thinks is important. <laughs> but the most important possession is knowing that Jesus Christ is your Savior. He came to this earth. He died for your sins. He loved you enough to pay for your sins, and he went to the cross, and he took your sins upon himself, and he died in your place, and then he rose again from the dead, the Messiah. He came and he suffered for me, for you. He rose again for me, for you, and he's alive today. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ and him alone, Transfer your trust off of your religion, anything else that you think you can do to earn a spot in heaven. Put that aside and put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Folks, in that moment you trust Christ, you've got it all because you've got Jesus at that moment. If you've never trusted Christ, I encourage you to do it. And then as you grow in him, you become more and more convinced more, con more convinced of his aliveness in your life. More and more convinced that one plus God is a distinct majority. More and more convinced that every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And you will go into this world with boldness and proclaim it to this world. Like Marzia and Maryam. Two young Iranian Young women born into Muslim families who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Miraculous story. They became bold witnesses of Christ in a very hostile setting in Iran. They uh, were used by the Lord in marvelous ways, but one way was uh, they would get smuggled, smuggled Bibles into Iran. They distributed literally tens of thousands of Bibles. They stood boldly as a testimony for Jesus Christ in Iran, but it caught up with them in 2009. They were caught and put in the notorious prison in, in Iran called the, um, the Evan Prison. Horrendous environment, horrible stench, the death, the torture. And these young ladies, that's where they were found. They were told, at any moment, you can be released. You can walk out free women. Just renounce Jesus Christ. Just curse him, renounce him, and you go free. And time and time again, they said, absolutely no. We love him. He died for us. He is our Savior, and he's alive. We will not renounce him. They were brought before the... Islamic court, the infamous Islamic court. They even had a, a lawyer that family members had somehow secured for them who tried to defend them 
these girls, they, they really didn't know for sure what they were doing. They're not sure. They're, they're young. They're, and and uh, Marzia stood up and says, no, no, he's, he, he's wrong. We do know what we're doing. We love Jesus. He's alive. They stood before the Islamic court in 2009 in Iran and made a bold um, testimony for Jesus Christ. And they were sentenced to death by hanging. Now, if you want to hear the whole story, I would encourage you to go to a podcast called Double Take. Our, our elder here, Les Sellers, is the host of Double Take. And uh, last week, or September 1st, this new podcast edition came out of Double Take about their story. It's entitled Three Questions, because I'll give you a little hint. God miraculously freed them from the Evan prison. They live here in the United States, and they're telling their story. You can Google it. It's an amazing story of boldness. Boldness for Jesus. Like the Apostle Paul, convinced of the aliveness of God. Convinced that one plus God is a distinct majority. Convinced that when you have Jesus, you've got it all. May God help us to be people who are bold and go out in this world with those convictions. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us the opportunity to have this, the story of the Apostle Paul, this, this historical account of a man that you used in such a powerful way to give testimony to you. But, Father, it's being repeated over and over and over again in our world. Because, Father, there's so many of your people who share those same convictions and exemplify the same boldness. And, Father, in our world today, in our America today, may we, may we be so convinced of your aliveness, of your power, of who you are, that we will stand with boldness and declare you are alive and that you have paid for our sins, Lord Jesus, with your own blood. May we move forth into this world, as Peter said, with, with gentleness, with reverence, but with the power of conviction. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.